We're so glad that you are checking out this sermon from New Beginnings. Our vision as a church is to become an authentic biblical community that transforms our city and impacts the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We do this through gathering in worship, growing through community, giving to the kingdom, and going on mission. We know that one of the greatest blessings of the church is getting to pursue this vision that God has given us together. My hope is that we would get the opportunity to connect with you in person and get you plugged into the life of our church. Also, if you have been blessed by the ministries of New Beginnings, we ask that you would consider supporting us financially. You can do so by clicking on the giving tab of our website, nvbctx.org. I pray that you are both encouraged and challenged by the scripture today. We are launching into our new sermon series called Reset. Uh, this is going to be a series where we are exploring how in Jesus we can have a reset in life. Now, what do I mean by reset? I, I think life is full of moments where we wish we could get a clean slate and a fresh start. Ever You ever needed one of those? Clean slate, fresh start, right? Bless the Lord. I know I have. And, and really, that's kind of what the new year is all about. When we turn that calendar year, we kind of get this feeling of, having a fresh start and starting uh, again. But what we want to discover in the series over these next three, uh, three weeks is how in, it's in Christ Jesus. It's in Christ alone that we really get that fresh start that we need for our souls. And listen, it's not built on resolutions or personal goals. There's nothing wrong with those. But the reset my soul needs the reef is going to come from Jesus. That, that refreshing of what Christ has done for me, that refueling by the Holy Spirit, and that refocusing on the race God has called uh, me to run. That's going to be done as I fix my eyes on Jesus. And so I think far too often uh, we struggle as we try to live this Christian life, this life of faithfulness to Jesus as disciples of Christ. We try to live it in our own strength and, and our own power, only to find out this, that we fail time and time again, right? That we try our hardest, we make these new commitments, we, we give it our best efforts, only to find out it's not enough, that our best efforts is not enough. And listen, that's why we need the good news of the gospel, right? The good news of the gospel begins actually with a little bit of bad news, and the bad news is this, you're not enough, but the good news is Christ is enough. Amen. Amen. So that's why we fix our eyes on him. Uh, our power isn't enough. Our intentions are not enough. Our best efforts. It is why we need Jesus. And here's what I know. In Jesus, as we experience these reset, as we fix our eyes on him, we can be forgiven of our sin. We can be infused with supernatural power. And we can live a life of purpose. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds like something worth pursuing to me. Amen. Living a life of purpose. I don't know if anybody in here can connect with feeling like they're living a life, but it doesn't have purpose. I want to tell you in Christ Jesus, here's what you can find. Forgiveness for your sin. Complete forgiveness for your sin, which means you get to walk in a freedom infused with supernatural power. I'm not talking about magic. I'm talking about Holy Spirit power to wage war against sin and darkness and then live a life of purpose, running the race that Christ has called us to run. That's what I want to pursue. And I hope that is what we chase down 
in this series. So I want you to grab your Bible, go to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 5, but before we jump in, I kind of want to set it up a little bit. Um, This is written by John the Apostle, the same one who wrote uh, the Gospel of John, and he's writing this letter to the church. So he's writing to Christians, right? And he's writing to um, house churches. And so this letter would have been circulated among smaller house churches in the area of Ephesus and in Rome. And so he would have written this letter, it would have spent some time at one house church, been handed to another, and that's how the letter would have circulated. And right in the beginning of 1 John chapter 1, he kind of tells us the purpose for writing the letter. In the first four verses, he says that this life, talking about Christ, this life was made manifest among us. He's speaking of Jesus. He says, this one that we have seen with our own eyes and touched with our own hands, who is from the Father. He says, we are proclaiming him to you so that you might have fellowship with God. That's the purpose he's saying. He said, so if you look at 1 John chapter 1 verse 4, here's what John says. He says, we are writing these things so that our joy, talking about the collective joy of the church, the joy of every believer, so that our joy may be complete. So that everything John writes after verse 4 has a singular purpose, to increase and complete the joy of believers in Christ. He says, everything I'm writing to you, I'm writing so that our joy may be complete. So when he talks about in a few moments, when he talks about walking in the light as God is in the light, he talks to, tells us to do that too and increase our joy. When he tells us that we can confess our sin and God is faithful to forgive our sin, he does that to increase our joy. When he teaches us that Christ is our advocate before the Father, he gives us that good news to cause our joy to increase. And when he tells us that we lo- should love one another because God is love and everyone who loves God is going to overcome the world because God has overcome the world. He gives us those truths to to elevate our faith and increase our joy. And you go, well, why is that important? Why is that important? Well, if you think about his audience for just a moment, he was writing this letter to small house churches, which means they were meeting in private and secret in a way, because they weren't welcome in the public sector. They weren't given public property to go and have worship services. These things were having to, ha- having to happen in homes. And remember, these are brand new believers. So not only are they new as a church, but they are brand new in their faith and they are struggling and they are facing persecution and they're facing exclusion. Matter of fact, they're so new in their faith. And in the first verse of chapter two in first John, he calls them little children. It's not because they're at vacation Bible school, right? It's because they're babies in the faith. And so John is writing this to these struggling house churches that are meeting in private, meeting in secret, um, to encourage them to increase their joy by establishing their faith. Faith in who God is, faith in what he has done for us in Jesus Christ, and faith, listen, in that in the God who has saved us, we can overcome the world. If you want 2020 to be a year 
where your joy increases. Ask God to increase your faith. Say, what do you mean? I mean, ask God to help you trust him more. Ask God to help him, or ask God to help you believe for greater things. Ask God to help you believe the promises of his word like you never have before. Ask God to give you the courage to set high goals of discipleship, of leading someone to Christ, of memorizing God's word, of walking in faithfulness, of defeating sin. Ask God for big things and believe in faith and watch him increase your joy. Watch him increase your joy. Let's look at 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, and we're going to read uh, through the first couple of verses of chapter 2. God's word says this. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all Sin, and if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to what? To forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you memorize one verse in 2020, would you make it 1 John 1 9? Would you just put that one in the memory bank? And, and just pull, pull it out every time you stub your toe. Pull it out every time you fail. Pull it out every time the enemy tells you a lie and accuses you. If you confess your sin, he's faithful and just. will forgive you from your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, listen to this. We have an advocate with the Father. Who is that? Jesus Christ, the righteous. I love that it calls him Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. That is the payment. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Let's pray. Father, I'm asking this morning that you would speak to us through your word. Lord, your word is powerful. Your word is strong. Your word is life, Lord. Your word is divine. It is perfect. God, your word is the conviction of my sin. Your word is the correction when I'm wrong. Your word is the affirmation of who you are. And, and it is hope and it is joy. It is peace, Lord. It is teaching. It is growing. It is nourishment. And so, Lord, I am praying that today your word would be all those things, and I am begging God that you would protect your church from anything that is of me. And God, would you just magnify, grow, illuminate, cause to explode before our eyes those things that are of you. Would you open your word to us now in Jesus' name? Amen. Amen. So what we see in the, these verses is John is really teaching us one main truth. Now, I told you the overarching purpose uh, that, to which John is writing this letter is to uh, give us fellowship with God and to complete our joy. But he's going to do that 
through one main truth, and here is the truth. It's in verse 5. The truth is this. God is light, and in him there is no darkness. In him there is no darkness. That is the truth John wants us to understand. It's kind of the starting block for everything he's going to teach after that. So what does it mean to say God is light? What does that mean? I think it means that light is, is the very nature and character of God, which is to say he is not a light or a kind of light. He is light itself. All light comes from him. And what we see throughout God's word is the word light is used in reference to holiness and to wisdom and to uh, righteousness and truth and salvation and life. So when John says God is light, he is saying God is the source of, he is the perfection of holiness and wisdom and truth and salvation and righteousness and life. And in him, there is no deficiency. Do you walk every day? I know I, I want to walk every day with the understanding and the truth and the liberating freedom of knowing that in my God, there is no deficiency. There is no lack in him. Because if I walk in that freedom, then no matter what intersects my path, I can measure it against the God who has no deficiency, right? And suddenly I'm approaching that thing a little different. I love that. John says, God is light and in him there is no darkness, which is to say he is the perfection of holiness, righteousness, light, love, salvation, and truth. And after that, there is no darkness. There is no deficiency in him. And over the next few verses, John begins to teach the church what it means then to walk in that light, what it means to walk in that light. And he is giving us the framework whereby we can know if we are in the light or if we are still walking in darkness. That's the framework he's going to build out for us over the next few verses. And listen, I think a true reset, a true kind of clean slate, fresh start, if we're going to have a reset, I think it begins with an honest assessment. It begins with an honest assessment. I don't know about you, but every year, right around this time, I make the same goal that I did the year before and the one I did the year before that, and that goal is to drop some, some LBs, to just be a little bit less me in 2020. And um, I do that every year. And I do the same thing every year. Every year I get up, I'm super motivated, right? I go to the gym, I walk into the gym. Now, let me ask you this. Have I honestly assessed myself and I've thought I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fade my way into building my strength? I'm going to ease into it? No, that's not what I do. What I do is I go in there and I find the heaviest thing they have available that I can manage to get off the floor and I lift it as many times as I can like I've been doing it all my life until I can't move anymore and I go home feeling like a champion, right? And then what do I do the next morning? It hurts to blink. When I blink, I feel pain, right? It's from the hair down, I'm in trouble, I can't move. And what, what do I do in that moment? I get discouraged and I go, oh, well, this isn't worth it because I can't do, use these things, right? That's how you feel. 
Well, what was missing from that? What was missing was an honest assessment. Hey, you may want to ease into this. You may want to take an assessment to realize you're not an 18-year-old athlete anymore. Uh, You've been through a few all-you-can-eat buffets, and you got some stuff to work on, and you uh, you need to take it easy, slick. You can't go in there and lift like that dude. Right, but it it begins with an honest assessment, and I think in order for us to find that refreshing and that that renewal and that refocusing that our souls need and yearn for, we need to honestly assess where we are. And here's what I mean by that: you need to honestly look at your relationship with Jesus and honestly look at your sin. An honest assessment. That's where that's where this. Starts And John helps us to do that this morning. Matter of fact, I think John gives us three conditions people are in when it comes to their sin. I think he gives us three conditions. Here they are. We are either dominated by sin, we are either denying sin, or we are delivered from sin. I think that's what we're going to see this morning. You're either being, that's it, dominated by sin, denying sin, or being delivered from sin sin. And as we unpack these conditions this morning, I I want you to do an honest assessment and I want you to acknowledge where you are because then we can allow Jesus to do his good work in us. Amen? Amen? All right, well, let's begin. Let's look at that first one, dominated by sin. What does it mean to be dominated by sin? I think John describes it as walking in darkness. If you look at verse six of Chapter 1 there, he says, If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie. And we do not practice the truth. Now, throughout John's writings, he uses light over and over. Light and, he uses light and darkness all the time. And in light, he refers often to life and darkness refers to death. We see it in John chapter 1, the gospel that he wrote of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And in John chapter 1, verse 4, he says, in him was life, speaking of Christ. And that life was the light of men. And then in verse 9 through 11 of 1 John, he says that that true light was coming into the world, but the world rejected it, right? The world did not receive the light, But in 1 John, I'm sorry, but in John chapter 1, verse 12, he says, But to all who did receive him, to all who received this light, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The picture John is painting for us is this, that Jesus is life, and therefore, or excuse me, Jesus is light, and therefore he is life. And everyone who receives this light receives life and salvation, but the one who does not receive the light or who has rejected the light, that person walks in darkness and has not received salvation. So I ask again, what does it mean to be dominated by sin? Simply put, I think it means this. It is living an unrepentant life. It is living in sin and and being unconcerned that you are offending a holy God. I know we just jumped off into the deep end and it got heavy, right? But that's what it means to walk in darkness. John is saying that's being dominated by sin. So let me just ask, honest assessment. Does that describe anybody in this room? 
that you're able to live an unrepentant life. Living a life of sin, unconcerned that you are offending a holy God. It's, a, it's living a life of habitual sin without experiencing the conviction of the Holy Spirit and sensing the need to repent of it. This speaks directly to our union with God. And that's what John means when he says, if we say we have fellowship, if we say we have a union, if we say we're in a saving relationship, if we say we have fellowship with him, while we walk in darkness, while we walk in an unrepentant, unconvicted, habitual sin lifestyle, we lie and do not practice the truth. Being dominated by sin, walking in darkness, is evidence of a life without union with God. It's a life that has not experienced the light of Jesus Christ. Now, what I find interesting here is John is writing this letter to the church. Find that interesting. He knew where this was going, right? This wasn't going to the city council at Ephesus or the government at Rome. This was going to a church. This was going to saved people. That's where John was writing the letter. So he's writing a letter about salvation to people who are already saved. So what's going on there? And I think John uh, understood that not everyone who claimed the name of Jesus had actually made him the Lord of their life. Jesus knew this, didn't he? In Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, he said, Not everyone who says to me what? Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of heaven. John knew it. Jesus knew it. See, we live in a culture. I think East Texas, kind of this area. We live in a culture where everybody's a Christian, right? I, I I go to church on Easter. I'm a Christian. I went to VBS as a kid. I'm a Christian. My grandparents raised me in church. I'm a Christian. I prayed a prayer when I was seven. I'm a Christian. We live in this culture where everyone's a Christian. But can I tell you one of the great fears of my life? If you want to know what keeps pastors up at night, it is this, that there would be people in this church who think they are saved, but who are still walking in darkness. That, that is what keeps me awake. People who believe they are in the light and they are walking in darkness. I think there are, I think there are three indicators um, for us to know if we are still walking in darkness. And again, this is honest assessment on the front end, right? Three indicators of people who can be in church for years, but I want you to, we're going to measure together. Does this mean we are still walking in darkness? Here's the first. Can I, am I living in unrepentant sin? Now just honestly ask yourself that. Am I living a life of unrepentant sin? Am I able to navigate this life and never feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit? Do I ever feel overwhelmingly compelled to stop and confess my sin and seek forgiveness? If you can live a life of unrepentant sin, that's a marker that you may not have that union with God. What's another one? Having a casual attitude towards sin or openly embracing sin. I know God's Word says this, but really, it's all right. Right? I know I'm supposed to check that box on my, on my taxes, but uh, if I don't check it, I get a bigger return. I'm like, ah, it's all right. 
openly embrace, openly embracing sin. Here's the third one. This is the one I think gets us sometimes, and that is praying a prayer with no life change. So for so many, for, for decades, the church didn't do a great job of, of helping people come to faith. What we did was we settled into a rhythm where we said, if you'll pray this prayer, then you are saved. And so you had generations of people who said some words and believed that was all that was necessary. And so oftentimes when I'm counseling with people or we're working through with someone, when they came to faith in Jesus Christ, I will say these words. I don't want to know about when you prayed a prayer. I want to know about when Jesus changed your life. That's what I want to know. I want to know about the moment Jesus intersected your life, and from that moment to this moment, you have not been perfect, but you have never been the same. Tell me about that moment. And sometimes they go, I don't know that I have that moment. And I go, yes, you're about to have that moment. <laughs> right? And then sometimes they go, oh, I can tell you right when that moment was. I prayed a prayer when I was seven, but there was this moment in high school, or I was at this camp, or it was this thing that happened in college, or when I was a young adult, this happened. And that was the moment I really, God knew I met Jesus, and my life changed. It's not been the same. So what does it mean to be dominated by sin? It means that you do not have union with God. It means you're living an unrepentant life. Maybe you can openly embrace sin, excuse it away. Maybe there's, if you look back on your life, you would have to confess there has never been life change for me. Why is that necessary? Because when Jesus enters a space, the space changes. When Jesus enters a heart, the heart changes. When Jesus saves a life, the life changes. It's not the same anymore. So has there been that moment for you? That's what it means to be dominated by sin. Here's the second condition that John is laying out, and that is denying our sin. If you look at 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, he says this, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Now listen, most of us don't struggle with admitting we sin, right? Most of us, it, it isn't hard for us to confess that we are sinners. But John is writing this letter where there were those who believed that because God was holy, fellowship with God, a holy God required you to be sinless. And the way they translated that was they would claim to have no sin. In other words, they would claim to never sin. Because for them, that was the only way they could have fellowship with God. Here's what was happening. They would present this false front. Listen, they would present a facade of holiness to try and portray nearness to God. Oh, bless the Lord, I've done gone to meddling. Is anybody else? Can anybody else other than me? Point to a moment in your life or a season in your life, or maybe you're standing in the middle of it where you've tried to present a facade of holiness to portray a nearness to God that wasn't actually true. That's denying sin. So John is saying, if you deny, if you say you have no sin, if you say there's this facade of holiness because you want me to think you're nearer to God than you actually are, he said, you're deceiving yourself. And John is, is wanting us to go to war with that 
hypocrisy. You say, oh, but pastor, I'm willing to say I sin. I often confess that I'm a sinner. Matter of fact, I usually even feel bad about my sins. So this doesn't apply to me, right? Well, I want, I want to show you three ways we deny sin. Three ways that we deny sin. I think we hide it. I think we dismiss it. And I think we justify it. I think there's three ways that believers deny sin. What does it mean to hide it? It means we conceal it. We simply act like it doesn't exist. Or, or we do this. We confess small but hide big. What do I mean by that? I mean, I'm willing to confess the things that I know are safe to confess, but I'm going to hide the big thing that's actually rotting the core of who I am. Some of you this morning, you have something in there and it is absolutely destroying your life. And you are convinced there is no safe space where you can speak that and get help. And I'm telling you, this is the safe space. Jesus is the safe space. You don't have to hide that sin. But we get into this rhythm of confessing small. I'm going to say what's safe. I'm going to say what I know you can look at and you can say, oh, I'll pray for you over that. But I'm going to hide big. I'm going to hide the thing that's actually destroying me. When someone asks if we're doing okay and we know the answer is no, but we say yes anyway. Some of you have done it about a dozen times today. Right? So what it means to hide. What does it mean to dismiss or to, to minimize our sin? Well, we say this, that's eh, really not that big a deal. It's really not that big. At least it's not as bad as them. I mean, I do this, but it ain't as bad as what they do, right? I've said this before. It's not hurting anyone. It's not hurting anyone else, right? I, I can stop anytime. I can stop anytime. Every one of those is a lie from the enemy. Every one of those is a lie from the enemy. I will tell you this. You've heard me say it before, you'll hear me say it again. T sin will take you further than you want to go. It'll keep you longer than you want to stay. And it'll cost you more than you want to pay. Every time. Every time. So we hide it, we dismiss it, or we justify it. Right? Well, they treated me unfairly, so they got what they deserved. Right? This is really their fault. If they apologize to me, then I will. And we justify. But listen, when we hide, when we dismiss and minimize, when we justify, we deny sin. And God says we are deceiving ourselves. You know, when I was, uh, it was the fourth or fifth grade. It was, it was right in there. Um, I wasn't always the academic giant that I am today. And uh, uh, <laughs> we... Uh, I, I was particularly bad at math. Anybody else have stress dreams about math? I do all the time. And um, I was doing really bad at one particular moment. And at that time, the teacher would send home the failing grades, and we were supposed to get them signed. You remember this little terrible thing you had to do? You had to do the walk of shame and hold your failing grade to your mom, and she had to sign it. You had to walk it back to your teacher. And um, that was to make sure the parent knew that you, that you weren't doing great. And 
Well, my teacher started to notice none of my failing grades were being turned back in with a parent signature on it. Or maybe, I don't know if anybody else has done that, I was signing for my mom and misspelling her name. That happened. That's a real thing. That's a real thing. I misspelled my mother's name trying to forge her signature. Okay, that's not good. Kids don't. It's just a terrible idea. Um, so one day my teacher goes, Matt, i got to call your mom. Ugh. Really? I don't think so. I think there's, let's work it out. No, nope, got to call your mom. So I go home and what do I do? I wait by the phone, right? That's back when nobody had phones in your pockets. There was a phone and you had to sit by it. And so I waited by the phone. It rings. I tried to be very cool and act like I wasn't in a panic. Hello, Darby residence, right? I did that whole thing. And all she said was, Matt, put your mom on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> yes, ma'am. So I give it to my mom. I know what they're about to talk about. I know that I have a folder the size of a Big Mac with nothing but bad grades in it. I know that. I know what this conversation is about to be about. So I hand my mom on the phone. I do a beeline for my bedroom, get my folder out of the backpack, and here's what I begin to do. I begin to take out all the failing grades, wad them up, and throw them behind my bed. That's not a joke. Wad them up. Talk. And the whole time I'm going, don't need that. Mm-mm, she don't need to see that one. And I'm just tossing them, tossing them, tossing them. I hear the phone click. My mom calls me into the living room. You all know the moment, the way your mom would say your name when you knew something bad was about to happen to you. She said my name that way. I bring my folder with me because I know what we're about to talk about, and I hand her my folder. And when she opens the folder, here's what's in it. Only the good grades are in there, right? The folder got a lot smaller, and only the good grades were in there. And she immediately knew something wasn't right, something was missing, and all she said was, where's the rest of it? And so she and I did the walk of shame back to my room where I moved my bed and we discovered that it had snowed failing grades behind my bed. <laughs> and one by one, I had to pick those papers up, straighten them out, and hand them to my mom. One by one. Right? What was I doing? I was, I was hiding. I was, I was dismissing. Right? I was minimizing. I, I wanted her... I wanted to present a facade of the student I knew that I should have been. And I was deceiving myself that if no one found out, it really didn't matter. Are you believing that lie right now that if no one finds out about the sin you are struggling with, it really doesn't matter? John says that's denying your sin and you're deceiving yourself. We cannot hide and dismiss and mis uh, minimize and justify our sin and at the same time claim intimacy with God. So you are either being dominated by your sin, you are denying your sin, or here's the third one. We are be being delivered from sin. Listen to me, Jesus came to deliver us from sin, to break the power of sin and darkness. We just sang about it a moment ago, to be the chain breaker. Jesus came to deliver us from sin. So how are we delivered from sin? I want to give you three ways. Here's the first one. The first way we are delivered from sin is this. We have to be born again. Some of you are being dominated by sin. You do not have union with God. You have not received the light of Christ. You are living in an unrepentant life. Well, how do I come out of that? 1 John chapter 1, verse 7 says this. 
But if we walk in the light, if we receive this light that is life, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin, which is to say that the light of Christ, through the blood of Jesus, that in the light of Christ, through the blood of Jesus, we are being moved from being dominated by sin to being liberated from it. I want to ask somebody in this room right now, are you ready to be liberated? Are you ready to be set free? I am telling you, John says, but if we walk in the light, if we receive the light of life that is Jesus Christ and we make him the Lord of our life and we are born again, we are moved from being dominated by sin to being liberated from it. Jesus shed his blood to destroy the power of sin in your life and to give you fellowship with God and fullness of joy. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 13 says, But now in Christ Jesus you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So have you, have you been born again? Now remember, I'm much less interested about a moment when you said words and I am way more interested in the moment Jesus changed your life. Has there been that moment for you? If not, he can change your life today. Today he can do that. The first way we are delivered from sin is that we are born again. The second way we are delivered from sin is this, through confession. Through confession. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, remember this is the one in 2020, I want you to memorize. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, if you're like me, immediately we tend to bristle at the idea of confession, right? We just tend to, oh, I don't know. I don't, I don't like that. We, we fear confession. Can we be honest and say that? We fear confession. Why? Because we can't control the outcome of confession. That's why we're afraid of it. Because we can't control the outcome of it. Right? We're afraid of the mess confession will make. Is that connecting to anybody this morning because it has with me we're afraid of the mess confession will make but i want to tell you this morning confession doesn't make the mess it reveals the mess it doesn't make the mess it reveals the mess right what do i mean by that have you ever had that moment where something broke behind your refrigerator and you had to scoot that bad boy out and then you looked at the floor down there right oh man it looked like some really tiny people had been having a frat party for about a decade under your, <laughs> under your refrigerator. It's just gross. There's fruit loops. There's just nastiness, right? You know what you've been kicking under there. I know in my house, if it hits the floor, my kids don't pick it up. They go, boop, it goes right under that fridge. <laughs> I know where it goes. There's all kind of nasty stuff under there. Well, when we moved the fridge, did moving the fridge make the mess? No. Moving the fridge revealed the mess. It revealed the mess. Listen to me. Confession is just moving the fridge. Confession is just acknowledging that there's a mess in my life and I need some help. We fear confession because we fear the consequences that may come in revealing our sin. Well, if they know they're going to judge me, 
If he finds that out, he's going to leave. If she finds this out, if she knows that, she is going to be furious. So what do we say? Well, I just won't move the fridge. I, I just, I'll just, I'll just leave it. Right? Because if, if they don't see the mess underneath, then it's okay. It's all right. Can I tell you what happens if you don't confess your sin? It grows. It gets worse. And listen to me, it eventually gets exposed. It eventually gets exposed. Why? Because the Lord God loves you and refuses to allow you to stay in the filth of your sin while he's pursuing you for intimate relationship. So if you think he will give you a lifetime of living in filth, you are mistaken. Why? Because he's chasing you down. And he wants relationship with you. And one of the ways you get delivered from your sin is you confess your sin. And that's the beauty of the gospel. That's the glory of 1 John 1, 9. Confessed sin, somebody needs to hear this. Confessed sin is powerless sin. Confessed sin is powerless sin. How can that be true? How can that be true? Listen, because when we confess our sin, we ignite the faithfulness of God to forgive us of our sin, and then His power overcomes the power of the enemy to accuse us of that sin. Amen. Oh, I said it, but I don't know if you believe it. When you confess your sin, it ignites the faithfulness of God to forgive you of that sin which then defeats the power of the enemy to ever again accuse you with that sin. Some of you are walking in a guilt and shame from a past failure because every day when you wake up, the enemy points a bazooka at your soul and defeats you before your feet hit the floor. And I am telling you, confession is the road to healing. It is the road to healing. And when you confess, the sin loses its power. Who in here needs to finally let the past failure die and begin to move forward, liberated and delivered? Confessed sin is powerless sin. How do we confess? Honestly and completely. Honestly and completely. Proverbs 28, 13 says this, whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. How do we confess? We do it honestly. We do it completely. And to whom do we confess? To our heavenly father and to one another. In Psalm 51, when David, after he had had the affair with Bathsheba and after he had had her mur husband murdered, the prophet Nathan came to him and the Holy Spirit broke David's heart and he began to confess his sin. And we see that confession in Psalm 51 and here's what David said. He said, against you and you only have I sinned. So we confess to the Lord and we confess to one another. James chapter 5, verse 16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another 
Why? So that you may have ammunition against one another? No. He said, so that you may be healed. How are we delivered from sin? We are born again. We are delivered from sin through confession. Here's the last one. We are delivered from sin through abiding in Christ. Through abiding in Christ. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. We're almost done. John said, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, I'm so glad that part's there. Whew. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. We have a hero. We have a representative with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Thank God I don't have to represent myself before the Father in my own righteousness. But rather, I have Jesus Christ my advocate, who's going to go be the propitiation for my sins. And when he goes before the Father, I stand in his righteousness, not my own. And as I abide in Christ, I walk delivered. As I submit myself to the one who has defeated sin, I get to walk delivered from sin. Confession is the road to healing and submission is the road to freedom. You go, that doesn't make sense. When you submit to something, don't you kind of, you're in bondage to it or you're a slave to it or something like that. I am telling you, submission to Jesus Christ is the road to being liberated from sin because Jesus Christ has defeated sin. So this morning, what is your honest assessment? Are you being dominated? by sin, if you were honest, would you have to say, I don't know that there has ever been that moment where I have truly met Jesus and made him the Lord of my life and he changed me. I am still walking in darkness, but I want to walk in the light like he is in the light. If that is you, in just a moment, we're going to stand and I am begging you, don't listen to the lie of the enemy that tells you stay where you are, you don't need to move. Step out and step up. Maybe this morning your confession would be, um, I've been denying my sin. I've been hiding it. I've been dismissing it. I've been justifying it. I've been minimizing it. I'm the fifth grader throwing the bad grades behind the bed, hoping no one ever makes me move it. And this morning, you maybe, for the first time, turn around and get on your knees right at your seat and speak what your sins are to the Lord. And listen to me, the reason we don't speak in general, vague acknowledgments is because that doesn't help me kill sin. For most of us, the max confession we ever do is at the end of a prayer, we say, forgive me of my many sins, and we go fingers crossed, hoping that gets it done. We need to move from vagueness to clear, dark pillars of disobedience. And we need to name our sin. Why? Because when I name it, I can ask forgiveness. I can repent. I can let the blood of Jesus cover it. And then in the power of the Holy Spirit, I can kill it. I can't kill what I won't own. So are you denying sin? Maybe this morning your confession would be, I am being delivered from sin, but I need to grow in the discipline of confession. I need, to, I need to reset in abiding with Christ. Wherever you are this morning, as we worship and as we respond, I am praying you will step out and step up. Let's pray. Father, I love you. and 
Your word is strong, God. It is uh, strong as convicting. Lord, I'm praying that you would move among us this morning. Give us courage to obey. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, let's stand and let's respond. I hope that you have enjoyed this message. If you have any questions about anything that you have heard today or would like to know more about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, feel free to call our church offices at 903-759-5552 or send us an email at info at nbbctx.org. As for staying up to date with what's going on at New Beginnings, follow us on our social media accounts. Have a great rest of your day.